give it up for Christy. No, don't do that. Okay, now no, she said never mind. No. no, 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 don't do that. That's awkward. That makes me embarrassed. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, good morning. Um, how's my sound? Am I going to squeak? Okay, we're good. Um, so I wanted to talk to you guys this morning about contentment because that's something that God has been dealing with me on um, for these last few months. Um, they've been kind of a hard few months. And so just kind of relearning. I think that kind of before going into um, this difficult season, um, I, I thought that I had contentment dialed in. And so... Um, going through something difficult, you know, going through um, having suffering, having difficulties, trials, it kind of helps us uh, re-examine um, what we thought we knew, re-examine our beliefs, and helps us uh, maybe solidify some things, maybe um, turn to scripture and, and find some, some new truths that maybe we hadn't relied on before. Um, but So let me start with a quote um, by St. Augustine. Augustine, sorry trying to be literary and say it correctly, uh, is not the happy life the thing that all desire? And is there anyone who does not desire it at all? Asked St. Augustine in Book 10 of Confessions. Written in the last years of the 4th century and considered the first autobiography and one of the greatest Christian works ever written, Confessions is a lengthy, dramatic prayer to God, laying out the story of one man's search for lasting happiness. How then do I seek a happy life, he asks, since happiness is not mine, till I can rightly say, it is enough. This is it. How then do I seek a happy life? How do you seek a happy life? How do we all seek a happy life? Uh, I did a quick internet search just to see what it said. And it brought up articles and quotes all proclaiming the secret to a happy life. Can you guys guess what it was? Don't worry. Don't worry. What'd you say, Dale? Love God. What? Love God. Love God? Yeah, good. What else? You're not hitting on what the internet said. I thought you guys would all get this right off. Megan knows it. Megan said it this morning with the children. It's gratitude. Gratitude is the secret to a happy life, according to the interwebs. Uh, for example, here are some quotes. Uh, Harry Ironside, I don't know who that is, but I like the quote, said, We would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. Or, a grateful heart is a beginning of greatness. It is an expression of humility. It is a foundation for the development of such virtues as prayer, faith, courage, contentment, happiness, love, and well-being. That was James Faust. Or, back to St. Augustine. For there is a joy not granted to the wicked, but only to those who worship you thankfully. And this joy you yourself are. The happy life is this, to rejoice to you, in you, and for you. That is it, and there is no other. But those who think there is any other follow after other joys and not the true one. But their will is still not moved except by some image or shadow of joy. So gratitude is the secret to happiness. But how can we give or feel or express gratitude in those deep, dark nights of the soul? As you all know, or most of you know, I have cancer. Adam and I and our kids have had the opportunity very recently to put this idea to the test. In the icy cold terror, sorry guys, my emotions are always right here. Um, I didn't think I was going to do this, I was trying not to. It's good. 
in the icy cold terror that comes when you're facing suffering, death, the unknown? Can gratitude dispel our anxiety and fear? Can gratitude bring happiness? I can't speak for anybody else in my family. Maybe I did it wrong, but it didn't work. It didn't work for me. In those deep, dark nights, gratitude wasn't the key to happiness for me. I couldn't feel grateful for my cancer, but as an act of obedience, I thanked God for it. I thanked Him for revealing Himself to me in such faithful ways, which He did every single day and continues to do. I thanked Him for drawing Adam and I closer than we already were. I thanked him for what I could learn through the journey, and I thanked him for trusting me with cancer, a phrase that I'd heard from a friend of mine that had cancer before me. And I really have had true moments of thankfulness for the cancer, for what it's taught me, but I didn't have happiness. I wasn't even content. I've been hopeless. So I'm currently meeting with a counselor to work through my grief and loss. Um, she drew a chart for me. Doug, I have a chart that I uh, sent a picture of. It should be up on the computer. Is it up there yet? Um, she said, hopefully it comes up. If not, I need a whiteboard. <laughs> um, hopefully she said, or she said, we all have expectations in life. And so, okay, I'll demonstrate with my hands. So expectations is the first bar on the graph, okay, and it's like this high. This is ex our expectations in life. Um, and then reality is here. And the difference between reality and our unmet expectations is experienced as loss. We grieve it. And I think that's important to recognize. Um, but when we change our expectations and focus on contentment, which is down here, just a tiny, tiny bit, the difference between contentment and our previous level of expectation is hope. That whole thing right there, when she said that, it just really struck me because that was, um, that was the key. That was the crux of the issue. That's what I realized all of a sudden that I was lacking, that I was lacking hope. One cannot be happy when one doesn't have hope. I have hope in my eternal future, but the hope for my earthly future has been shattered. The life I have lived is no more. Although my prognosis is very good and I finished my last chemo uh, two and a half weeks ago, praise the Lord, um, I will never go back to my, my pre-cancer self, my pre-diagnosis life where everything was easy and life was bright and there was no worry. It seems to me then that the secret to happiness lies in that little tiny piece of contentment. And then my counselor asked me the question that produced this essay, this lesson, this writing. She said, what would contentment with cancer look like to you? And that again brings us to another question. How can we be content? Let's take a look at um, how God taught his children, the Israelites, to be content. Uh, I'm going to read Exodus 16, 1 through 31. I think it'll be up on the board, but if it's not, uh, you can turn in your Bibles or look it up on your phone. Manna and quail from heaven. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin. Between Elam and Mount Sinai, they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, 
one month after leaving the land of Egypt. Uh, as an aside, I looked it up. I wondered how long it's supposed to take the Israelites um, to get from Egypt to um, Israel because it seemed like throughout the Old Testament they were journeying quite frequently. It's actually this pretty direct route that's about two weeks to walk from uh, northern Egypt to Israel. Um, but God did not take them that way because of um, they would be facing battle, the Amalekites and all the people that they would face in battle, and they weren't strong enough in their faith yet. So he took them across the Red Sea through the wilderness first so they would not have trials yet because they weren't ready. Anyway, that was just an aside. Um, one month after leaving the land of Egypt, there too the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. I don't think they're remembering quite correctly what their life was like before they left Egypt. Uh, we all do that. I do that too. My life pre-cancer looks so much rosier than it probably really was. Um, but now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, By evening you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not us. What have we done that you should complain about us? Then Moses added, The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. Then Moses said to Aaron, Announce this to the entire community of Israel. Present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. There they could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the Israelites' complaints. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp, and the next morning the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is this? They asked each other. That's what manna means, actually. What is this? I think that's funny. Uh, they had no idea what it was. And Moses told them, It is the food the Lord has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told. Some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, Do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was very angry with them. After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need. And as the sun became hot, the flakes they had not picked up melted and disappeared. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual, four quarts for each person instead of two. Then all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. He told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So they put some aside until morning, just as Moses had commanded. And in the morning, the leftover food was wholesome and good, without maggots or odor. 
Moses said, Eat this food today, for today is Sabbath day, dedicated to the Lord. There will be no food on the ground today. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. The Lord asked Moses, How long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. That is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day. So there will be enough for two days on the Sabbath day. You must each stay in your place. Do not go out to pick up food on the seventh day. So the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. The Israelites called this food manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like honey wafers. Okay. So... What do we notice in the story about the Israelites? What do we notice? What do we see? Um, how do we see them responding? First of all, to, just to their circumstances, you can answer. How do we see? Disobedience, yes, definitely. What? Complaining. I, I called that discontent. Complaining, discontent, yeah. Anything else? Those are the overarching emotions, aren't they? And, and the way they respond. So discontent, verse 3, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. Yeah, they were discontent. Um, and there's a lot of other verses, but that was most my favorite because he says, there we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Uh, disobedience, verses 19 and 20. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Uh, Moses was very angry with them. Another area where they disobeyed was on the Sabbath, verses 26 and 27. You may gather the food for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. There will be no food on the ground that day. Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day, but they found no food. And then I also listed obedience, because after they disobeyed, they obeyed. Uh, verse 21, they learned. After this, the people gathered the food morning by morning, each family according to its need. As the sun became hot, the flakes they had not picked up melted and disappeared. So that was after they had disobeyed, they learned, and they gathered day by day instead of hoarding. Also, verse 30, so the people did not gather any food on the seventh day. And then provision. So this is God's response to us, is provision. Um, verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. And then verses 17 and 18. Oops. So the people of Israel did as they were told and gathered a lot, some only a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. That's God's provision for us. How much did God provide for his children? Enough for each day only. Not enough for tomorrow or next week, or next year, just one day. This day. Today. They were to gather only enough manna to eat that day. And what happened if they gathered too little? It was enough. If they gathered too much, as long as they didn't hoard it and save it, it was enough. If they tried to keep it extra until the next day, it spoiled. God provided in this way for them for 40 years. Um, another aside that I just thought was interesting um, as I was reading through this, this foreshadows and mirrors Christ's own 40 days of wandering in the desert where God only sustained him. Can you imagine never getting to plan ahead? Never getting to look towards something new or different in the future? Nope. The exact same food every single day. But only enough for that day for 40 years. That's a long time to practice trusting God. 
for enough for everything but only for one day. They had to learn to go to bed at night with no food in their tent, no food in their camp, and trust God that in the morning there would be food for them. God would give them every day their daily bread. Whether they liked it or not, the Israelites had to learn to be content with that same food and to trust God to provide enough for each day. They had to be content with each day in itself, not looking too far ahead and not looking back to Egypt. They had to live in each day, and they did eventually learn contentment. Psalm 104.28 confirms this. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. Matthew 6.34 reiterates the message that we learn in um, Exodus. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let the morrow take care of itself. And again in Matthew 26, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Letting go of worry and trusting God are key lessons to being content. To this daily braining and gathering of manna, Jesus alludes when he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Again, trusting God and not worrying. In this way, we are taught contentment. But we're not done with God's provision yet. God in his mercy also provided quail in the evenings. A treat of meat. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but there's more. On the sixth day, they were to gather a double portion. And guess what? It didn't go bad. God provided extra so that one day a week they could rest. So being content is living in each day that God gives us. Doing the work required in that day without worrying about the future and resting. And that's difficult. I am a planner. I like to have projects. I like to look forward to things, anything. I don't know. It's just I always have something on my agenda, something to look forward to. I mean, it can be something like cleaning out the chicken coop. It doesn't have to be a big, you know, exciting project. But I have to have things to look forward to. I, I think that's how God made me. But with cancer, that all went away. I didn't have anything to look forward to. Um, that's where the hopelessness came in. And that's the lesson that God has been teaching me and is continuing to teach me, is to be thankful and content in this day. G.K. Chesterton defined contentment as being contented ought to mean in English, as it does in French, being pleased. Being content with an attic ought not to mean being unable to move from it and resigned to living with it. It's kind of how I'd always thought of contentment. It's kind of like resignation. It ought to mean appreciating all there is in such a position. So according to Chesterton, contentment is not resignation. It's satisfaction, being satisfied. Satisfaction with what you have, where you are, and who you are. Being content means you're happy with your current state and don't need or want anything more to maintain your level of happiness. That's huge. When we narrow our focus to the life God has given us, stop complaining, stop justifying, stop comparing, when we can learn to eat the manna he provides every single day, and yes, be grateful for it, we will be content. Now, don't go out from here thinking that I don't understand the power of gratitude, because I do. But gratitude does not exist without her sister contentment. I think they go hand in hand. And together, even in that tiniest amount, they give rise to hope. And that is the secret to happiness.
So how do you live a life of hope in the midst of despair, in the midst of normalcy, in the midst of boring sameness? Wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, you can let go of comparisons, complaining, ingratitude, despair. Narrow your focus until all you see is him who gives you life. Be content with your portion of manna, even if it's cancer. Whatever your portion is, be content. And have hope so that you, like St. Augustine, can say, happiness is mine. It is enough. This is it. So as we end, I want you guys to take a few minutes and reflect. I'm going to read these questions again, and I want you guys to think about them. I'll read one question and give a, a pause for a few minutes for you guys to reflect. Um, and then Adam will come up and close us in prayer. How do you live a life of hope in the midst of despair? How do you live a life of hope in the midst of normalcy? How do you live a life of hope in the midst of boring sameness? <laughs>